Do you need to be a maverick or have a maverick moment in order to create a futures culture in organisations? One of the things that really gets under my skin is when someone is interviewed who's had a career for 30 years. Let's talk to the Rolling Stones and they'll start an interview with one thing led to another and here we are. And it makes my skin itch because it doesn't happen like that. <laughs> it's not true. There's intention and there's circumstance and opportunity and patience and setbacks and everything. And I think the term maverick connotes like a magical moment where someone can walk into a room, slam down a solution that everyone has an emotional reaction to, and either you go or you don't go. But I can point to many stories in my life where there's a scaffolding or a laddering of little decisions that create epic results. That is Maggie Grayson, who is my guest on FuturePod today. Maggie is a design and foresight consultant who works with maverick thinkers and leaders in organizations to help them make resilient decisions. Welcome to FuturePod, Maggie. Thanks, Peter. It's such a joy to be here. I've been listening to the podcast for many years and have been conniving on how I could possibly get your attention because there's so many cool things that I've learned from this. It's made a huge influence on how I see the work that I do. So thank you. Wow. If you're an avid listener, then you know the avid listener, the first question is the origin question. So what is the Maggie Grayson origin question? How did you get involved with this weird, wonderful futures and foresight community. I love that you call it a community because I wasn't sure how to describe it to somebody else the other day, profession or gaggle or herd. And it really does honestly feel like a community and everyone's got a part to play in it. I can start with that when I was a kid, I didn't think I'd be helping maverick decision makers. I love drawing and making art. But I realized I had a talent for interpretation and not really fine motor skills. I could translate a concept into something that you can physically point at or understand with your senses, but I still didn't know how to contribute to the world. I was a pretty insecure kid and spent a lot of time with books and TV where I got my understanding of the world. If a topic was taboo on TV, then it was hard to talk about in real life. So when you're watching TV shows from the 50s, model housewife and so on is very the role model of the time. I was able to identify that I was the recipient of a safe and happy life because of generations of suffering and struggle before me. But I felt guilty that I wasn't living in the real world, quote unquote. And that's become a driver for me to hold those two halves at the same time. I'm grateful to be safe and healthy but restless because I have more to give with a solid foundation of love and support for my well-educated and sophisticated parents that gave me the life that I have. So I had lots of false starts in my studies until I found a program for theater design at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. 
the education, the community of artists, and the diverse culture of a bilingual city really inspired me. I developed a mature aesthetic and stayed in theater design for 10 years. I worked in the U.S., London, Toronto, Edinburgh, and assisted world-class designers on both authentic reproductions and futuristic interpretations of Shakespeare and Greek tragedies. I sat in rehearsal halls for 10 years watching actors and directors discuss the nuance in the text and how that reinterpretation could change the entire relationship and story. As a prop maker, I would give them a dagger made of plastic, and then they had to do the work to make it a significant threat or turning point in the play. I was part of a team of highly creative people orienting themselves towards opening night. There's a lot of pressure in serving the production. We're all starting with an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with 10 point font on it and creating a world that means something to an audience in exchange for their time and money. So aside from the technical skills of being a designer, I used research, empathy, and intuition to help others do the best they can. And that is a bit of the approach I bring to my work today. So that kind of makes, that's like a contained sense of that Maggie. And then did that just ease into the future space or was it actually a disruption from that, the Maggie we've got now? Well, thank you. So working in the theater may sound glamorous, but I spent many late nights alone. <laughs> now, it's passion and poverty together. It is. And I've been looking for non-poverty and still very passionate about my work. But either I was working really late nights at home alone or pounding the pavement with my portfolio in hand. It boom or bust. And <clears throat> for many people, it's all or nothing. In Canada, very few people are lucky enough to have this as a sustainable career. So I always had one foot out the door, hoping to transfer my skills into something that was, had a rewarding income, but was still collaborative, story-driven, and had social impact. Lucky for me, in 2006, I met Suzanne Stein because I was invited to be a resident at the Canadian Film Centre to study interactive media. Suzanne brought a trend deck and... I practically had this thing in my wallet and showed it to anyone and everyone who I could talk to about it eight years until I applied to the program. So she, I've, I, because of that experience in the Canadian Film Center program, I followed down the path with interactive media, which led me to work in marketing communications with big tech companies like Rogers and GE and Nissan. I developed a definition of innovation that served my clients very well. I tested their risk appetite with innovation and would deliver something that was outside their comfort zone so that they'd get excited about the possibility of change. Finding out someone's baseline beliefs about change and managing their expectations through it is another approach that I bring to my work today. So since I thought Suzanne was the bee's knees, I kept track of what she was involved in, which turned out to be founding the Masters of Design in Strategic Foresight and Innovation at the Ontario College of Design University. I went through the program and gained the language to help Mavericks to understand their risk appetite and what they need to lead change. So working with Suzanne and many of the other brilliant teachers and students in the program changed my life. And I'm for forever grateful to the community of social-minded thinkers that it attracts. 
You've introduced a word I think that's going to come up a couple of times today, the maverick. So what is it about, okay, who are mavericks? What makes a person a maverick? And why are you, I'm going to say, so interested in working with mavericks? I think I'm drawn to mavericks. And what I think a maverick is an archetype that people can put that hat on if they want to in the right circumstances when it requires challenging thinking, when it requires looking around a corner where other people aren't. So it's both a mindset and a way of being in the world. And I actually spoke to a woman named Billy. who wrote about Mavericks and she interviewed 99 Mavericks and each one is a recorded podcast about half an hour. And she's got a list of 10 questions and asks each Maverick, why do you do what you do? So it seems not to be a consistent definition for each person and that there's not necessarily a self-identification as a Maverick. It's Someone who just has the optimism and humility and empathy and self-reflexive ability to try something a little bit different and be okay to not get it right. Yeah. I'm looking at this through the lens of art. Of course, you can be maverick in many ways. In the arts field, mavericks are often outside the norms and outside the morals of culture and choose to do that, choose to almost be maverick and not to accept that there is collateral effects of what they do, but to almost simply say, well, of course there are. I'm actually a maverick in order to create the collateral effects. Are you a maverick? You talk about them, but are you a maverick or were you a maverick? Yeah, I didn't think I was until a good friend of mine described the book that I was writing as a well-organized leap of faith for mavericks. And she said, you're going to know this because you are one. One of the things that really gets under my skin is when someone is interviewed who's had a career for 30 years, let's talk to the Rolling Stones and they'll start an interview with one thing led to another. And here we are. And it makes my skin itch because it doesn't happen like that. (laughs) It's not true. There's a tension and there's circumstance and opportunity and patience and setbacks and everything. And I think the term maverick connotes like a magical moment where someone can walk into a room, slam down a solution that everyone has an emotional reaction to, and either you go or you don't go. But I can point to many stories in my life where there's a scaffolding or a laddering of little decisions that create epic results but I don't consider myself a maverick because it doesn't happen at once. 
Yeah. When we can see fundamental change and we can see maverickness looking back in hindsight from where we were to where we are, but in the moment, in the present, it's lesser being a maverick and more just being stubborn, determined, and prepared to just stick at something in order for the future to emerge. I think intuition is another word that I would add to that. Because sometimes there is no words to describe how certain you are about the way things might happen or play out. But a strong comfort in let's just give in to this process or let's give in to a decision that doesn't seem to have foundation to it. It's that maverick that can hold the space for people to be okay that there is a decision being made. Let's move to the work of Maggie. So what's in the bag of tricks that you use and what do you want to talk about explain to the listeners? Thank you for asking that question. This one was difficult for me to come up with one tool because there are so many and they all can't be used at the same time for the same reason. So I went back to the research that I did when I was doing my master's program. At the time, I used a series of methods that support scenario development and futures literacy because culture is so important to manifest change. The mavericks that hire me have tremendous hearts and drive, but they can't onboard foresight into their organization alone. So we work together to create a culture of futures thinking that hopefully becomes a strong reflex and more practitioners get hired to do the work the serious work that we do. That's a call to action. At the beginning of my program in starting in 2014, I began completely overwhelmed. I cried in my first systems thinking class. I felt lost in my design and business innovation class. And I couldn't understand a word that my prof was saying in human factors. I thought I could just skate by without learning anything theoretical or complex. And then come out the other side, making awesome future tech solutions for science fiction movies. But when it came time to do my own thing in my major research project, the challenges of what do we do and how we explain it is was still a very big sore spot for me. So my impulse was to help future thinking maverick decision makers to understand strategic foresight by experiencing it firsthand. I wanted to enable them to understand it using their own language, having experienced it. So in this case, I would be the scriptwriter and they'd be the main actor interpreting the text in their own way. So at that time, personal futures was a very niche area in future studies. In 2015, when I started thinking about it, Vern Wilwright's PhD thesis was using future studies, putting the self at the center of the line of inquiry, for example, backcasting your relationships with your family or creating four scenarios for your career. 
it's a great primer and it's very scalable. And he's done really well for the community by translating his book into many different languages. This made sense to me, but doing the exercises myself didn't make me feel optimistic about my future. So I worked on a technique during my master's program that combined tools from systems thinking, design thinking, ethnography, prototyping, storytelling, and crafts. Stuart Candy was my advisor, and I was also working with a social design organization called In With Forward that's done some work in Australia. During my research, I developed a workshop that I called Making Futures Present, and I've since run this workshop with about 100 people in all life stages from high school to retirement. So I've broken it into five steps, and the content changes, but the technique is elastic and has helped me to generate a lot of insight about how we think about the future. The five steps are listen to what people think they want. Echo back and open the door to possibility. Help them to use uncertainty as a gift. Practice strategy in different contexts in a low-risk environment. And then help them to look more closely at the impacts of their decision before going ahead with the plan. It all sounds obvious when you spell it out that way. I suppose my first question is, why do we need to tell people to do what seems to make sense? Because people are busy, and I think that finding a place of calm is a very hard thing to do. Only when you've found a place of calm can you even look around at your surroundings. And then when you're able to digest or understand what's around you, can you start to look forward and make sense of it? I'm hearing Andy Hines has a term called permission foresighting, which is the notion of giving people permission, allowing people to pause, to sit, to have fun, to just explore. In my experience working with people in organisations, they love the chance to just do something this because they don't get to do this very often. You've talked about culture. So if a process like making futures present is done to disturb the existing culture, then why does the existing culture prevent people doing this naturally? There is a lot of information <laughs> that I cannot provide in order to answer that question. However, there's reams and reams of scholars that could talk about organizational culture and development and strategists that can help to look into why an organization has some rigidity to it, where there is no, no space to reflect or make change. One of the things that I learned when I was working with the social service sector in working with people who are street involved, they're ability to look at the future is slim to none. And asking them to think about where they want to be in five years is almost cruelty because they don't have hope. They don't know where they're going to sleep that night. Leads to the conversation about thinking about the future is a privilege. And so when you're asking someone to, to do something that makes sense, 
there really has to be an elastic spectrum for that context. What makes sense? How clear or detailed or strategic that sense making can be really is part of how we create the space for somebody to do the work. So we have to be really sensitive when we're even just facilitating the room about what tools, techniques, and questions to ask. Yeah. Your first step is listening. And listening, of course, presumes that a person will tell you their truth. And a person's preparedness to tell their truth comes down to whether they feel safe in telling the truth. And I wonder Mm -hmm. whether culture and safety and truth-telling and listening to truth is what you're talking about. 100%. The first step I describe as listen to what people think they want. And so I invite them into thinking about their assumptions, their expectations, sharing their bias. I drew out a model that's a reinterpretation of the future cone. And I call it the cones of multiple truths. And all of the data, all of the stories, all of the interpretation that is coming into the present moment, all of the things that have had happen in their whole life up to that moment. So they're bringing their own sensitivities, what they saw in the news that day, stories that are as old as the beginning of their civilization, all into the room at that time. And what they think they want in the future is also mediated by the stories that came from their past and their assumptions about the present. And if we think of daters for futures and the continuous growth, it's one that's just preconditioned for some people, not everybody. It's the assumption about how the future might roll out and the invitation to share their expectations, share their, their bias and so on, share what they anticipate and encouraging them to not value whether it's right or wrong, not to put that, that fence around it. And in doing so, what emerges over time is values and how they want to contribute in the world. And themes that I continue to hear, and whether it's on a micro level, like a really small comment within a response, or they're talking at the systems level, people tend to want to give back as mentors or coaches or teachers or something. And a lot of comments tend to include something about that. And comments also tend to include health and wellness and community and attachment to community. Personal futures and personal appreciation of how you construct stories and where they're from and what the value of them is fundamental to my approach in futures thinking. And so I spent a lot of time looking at comfort zones and there was only one piece of research that I could find in peer-reviewed articles that really made sense to me about comfort zone and being outside of your comfort zone. 
And the mental model came out of listening to someone talk about helping someone step from one tree to another, 30 feet off the ground, and one platform is only a meter away from another platform. But the idea of stepping out of your comfort zone and the terror and the, and the pushback and all of that friction, when you're asking someone to do that, very real and doesn't create growth if, if it's too taut. Yeah. So part of the work, which is really critical, is understanding what that growth zone which is a thin meniscus between comfort zone and outside of comfort zone is, and it's different for everybody. So that's why this is a hard job. Yeah, and a couple of things that strike me, Maggie, is this, again, I'm, I'm always arcing back to this notion of maverick and maverick behavior. This notion of the comfort zone and moving outside the comfort zone is again a maverick behavior, but not too far that you basically go from being maverick to being dangerous or just are not helpful. And the other one is this notion of it's okay to play and be wrong. You can't be right about this. Therefore, there's license to be wrong about this. And I wonder whether that's also part of this kind of culture that you're talking about. When I think of some of the people who have been mavericks in really like bogged down traditional organizations, massive ships that can't turn. I think of how warm they are and how much they laugh and radiate and the people who are rebels are people who are shit disturbers, <laughs> they don't get a free pass. They can drive their agenda because they feel really right about it. But they might get that once because they're so strong-willed. But the Mavericks know that they're so much more involved in getting it right. And in, in my interviews, I found that some people don't even think that there is a wrong or right. It's just change is always going on. You can't get away from making decisions. So just make them. And if you don't make a decision, then the decision is made for you. Yeah. So just being a maverick is just getting ahead of inertia. Move to, we're not going to leave maverick thinking behind, I'm sure, but the futures around Maggie, the emerging things that are getting your attention and why, where is your attention being drawn or where is your attention moving from? I've noticed something that I, I'm clustering together, which is yes and culture. Yes and is a, a, a technique in improv where the first person will say great i'm on a train and there is someone coming at me and i don't have a ticket and then the next actor is called in 
And without any direction other than yes and, the next actor will say, so you jumped through the window or something to just keep the story going. And it's an antithesis of no but. So I'm seeing yes and culture as an impact on culture in little ways, people adding their pronouns to their names, people adding how many parts per million of CO2 were in the air when they were born. I'm seeing the way people title themselves on LinkedIn differently. I'm seeing the pride flag, which started with seven colors, now has, I apologize because I don't have one in front of me to count, but maybe 12 colors. And each opportunity is another way to express the multiple layers of how we are in the world. Bob Johansson wrote a book called Full Spectrum Thinking, and it is a lot of fun to read. He narrates it as well, and he does the great job really pulling out the story of how youth will introduce themselves with 20 different signifiers and that this is something that he's seen across so many different facets of life that he turned me on to the idea of full spectrum thinking, yes, and bringing multiculturalism. And our language is changing. Interdependence is a word that has really emerged in the last year. Intergenerational is a new theme in work. And we have a very strong movement in Canada to bring in some of the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that took over five years to complete. And it was an interview of members of the resident school system in Indigenous and Inuit and, and their families. And one of the recommendations was a land acknowledgement. So now when we see people coming into a panel discussion from across Canada, they'll say, I reside on the land that was originally governed by and so on. So it's no longer a street address. It's a geographic coordinate. It's a piece of territory on Turtle Island. And it's a, it's something that will exist long after we do. I wonder. If you're attentive to yes and, then you must be very sensitive to no but. Yes, I am. Because that we are seeing for the best possible intentions. There are many people who argue for a future that emerges better from attention to no but. So how do you sit with that? Would you be surprised if I said that it makes my skin crawl? I'm on the, the program advisory committee for a college in Toronto for their journalism program. And I dedicate time to teaching them and mentoring them and hiring them as interns and everything because their journalistic integrity is critical to sweeping generalizations. I feel quite certain that injecting that level of granularity and nuance into our work is going to help the no buts. It's very common 
to read a scenario that is muddy and sentences you don't really string together. It's just a system snapshot. I don't find those to be very helpful. They can create a very strong no but in the people who read them. So to counteract that no but, having nuance, patina, real life examples, date, place, and policies that were enacted really help to level an argument into the foundations of what's being discussed. When you have a real life example, you can orient yourself to that real life example. When you have a generalization or a no but, it's not a fair argument. Yeah. I guess for some people, the improvisational nature of the future scares them. And they, they want there to be firm things in the present that they can hold on to in order to move to the future. And then I also see people who deliberately want to leave things behind that have been with us till now. And they want to embrace the difference, the emergence, the improvisational nature of a different future. How do you sit in those worlds where there are people who are excited and wanting to run to a different future? And there are other people who are saying, I actually like the way things are now. I actually like the history that I'm part of. As ESR said, the future is a contest. It's a contest of ideas. There are ideas that go forward and there are ideas that do not go forward. There is the future of gain and the future of loss. When we move to a future, other futures were extinguished. Yes, they were multiple and possible, but in the present, we've actually closed down the space. We've actually chosen or it's chosen. I learned about a word or a concept called temporocentrality. And the idea is that we are smarter now than we ever have been in the past or ever will be in the future. And it's a phenomenon that our brains need because we can't possibly process the level of detail that we think might happen in the future or remember every fragment of every moment that happened in the past. It's a biological imperative that we don't have that all at the same time. So when you've got that biology and we also have a constant stream of menacing stories. It's hard to recognize what is future and what is past. And in the moment, I've got my head in a very linear future thinking when I'm answering this question, but I want to step backwards a little bit and remember that in Indigenous culture, as an example, they're thinking seven generations ahead and seven generations behind. I learned from Pupil Bisht that in India, there is no future. It's just the ever-present now. And so then not wanting things to change could perhaps be a very emotional reaction to a very emotional question. If you're not asking the question, they might not be answering that.
how does Maggie explain to people what Maggie does when people don't understand what Maggie does? I help individuals and organizations think about the future so that they can make resilient decisions today. I help serve up the question, what if, so what, and now what, so that they can start to consider, is this what we really want? Are we actually doing what we think we should be doing? Is this actually the problem that we're trying to solve? Do you trade on the design and theatre aspect to your past in order for you to do the things you just said? A hundred percent. I get hired as a designer because I'm a futurist and I get hired as a futurist because I'm a designer. So the projects that I end up doing are at that intersection of communication, understanding, calls to action. And when I'm working as a futurist, I'm always bringing in tangible experiential learning. And when I'm working as a designer, I always bring in the future into the questions that are being on the, put on the table today. Now, your business is, which is present, which seems to be a provocation in some ways that a lot of futures is not futures present. It's a really, a really interesting perspective about the future in that perhaps the future doesn't exist and it's blurry. It's too blurry to be malleable. So if we make it something that we can point at by constructing little pieces of it that are, that can be described in detail, then we can bring the future into our present. And I'll give you an example. I wanted to share a very story about how I learned that thinking about the future was quite hard, not just from a professional experience, but my husband and I were building a house and we had a roofer who actually burned down the house. What helped me get through that torturous time and the trauma of seeing it and the problems with the whole cast of characters that come around and ask you questions. I made a model, a little model of the house that when it was finished, it would look like this. And it was the process of building the model and measuring and cutting and thinking and making decisions on that minute level, really losing myself into constructing something that I wanted to see happen really was a very therapeutic process for me. And until that moment, I couldn't get calm. And then after I had this model of the house, I could connect with it and then start thinking about living in it. And I imagine the construction of the model wasn't an attempt to totally lock in what the future had to be. It'd still be different. It could still be different. It could still be different. And it was just a just an experience of making decisions, little decisions one after another. Yeah. Nice. 
So we're at the last part of the chat, Maggie, and you're writing a book. I want to tell the listeners about the book you're writing. <laughs> I call this my next book, even though I haven't written a book yet, because I want to envision full books and also take the pressure off myself of making this book perfect. So I'm writing a book for future thinking maverick decision makers. It's called Making Futures Present, and it's for organizations that are buried in uncertainty and need to make a change now. In the process of writing this book, I've interviewed people from Meta, Arup, Interact, Disney, CEOs of traditional financial institutions, people in the U.S. Army, people in the New Zealand Army, high-level people in Global Affairs Canada, people who run philanthropic organizations, marketing agencies, and many futurists, and also people who have just lost their jobs and people who are just starting their career. And some really interesting themes are starting to come out. I asked them the same 10 questions, and <clears throat> the answers that I'm getting back are on a continuum about confidence. So I'll ask in making decisions in times of uncertainty, what are the biggest challenges, frustrations, and fears that you have? And some of the answers are not having enough information to make the decision or not having the right process to make the decision. They're spinning their wheels on figuring out how to think about it. Other people take the pressure off and say perfection is impossible. Making decisions is inevitable. Some people suggest being a self-critic is how they get through it. Having diversity of thought and it's thinking types, ages, discipline, backgrounds, and all of those things comes up as a, as a positive and seems to open up a gate for for embracing uncertainty. And I, this is something that I hadn't thought of before until this conversation. Perhaps, armchair psychology, perhaps being in a room with people who are different from you and you already recognize that you're not the same and recognize that you're not going to come to things the same way, that you're already breaking a you've already got momentum of not knowing. So I don't know. I wonder if Peter, that how that comment meets with you. Yeah. What struck me, Maggie, was one of the things I observed teaching people. And when you are running, and I used to run workshops that went for days, so I wasn't lecturing in a traditional lecture format. We tended to run days that went for two or three consecutive days. So in that kind of intensive process, everybody was on their learning journey as an internal process. What I observed was as a group, people often observed how others had changed, how they saw others changing. And the act of observing change in others gave them confidence that they were going okay as well. 
So it wasn't internal, I need to feel confident. I see you've clearly changed. You've clearly shifted your thinking. And that gives me confidence to continue staying the path. That's really beautiful. It, it's, it creates a, a little micro community in a moment when you recognize someone has changed. I think that's a human quality that we're not going to get from AI and machine learning and so on. It's exciting for humans. Maggie, it's been a challenging and a very enjoyable <laughs> interview. Wow. Thank you, Maggie, for taking some time out to have a chat and talk to the FuturePod community. Thank you. And I will throw it back to you and say that this has been a very challenging interview as well because you ask fantastic questions. So thank you for the opportunity. It's really a pleasure. Today's guest was Maggie Grayson. You'll find more information about Maggie and Futures Present in her show notes on the website. Special thanks to Thunder for making the interview experience a bit more exciting and emergent as well. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support the pod, please check out our Patreon link on the website. I'm Peter Hayward. Thanks for joining us today.